coming up on Philosophy Talk. One of the most important decisions a group of people, whether it's a religious group or the nation, is whom should we admit as new members? What gives nations the right to control who can cross their so-called borders? Aren't we all global citizens? I don't think people by nature love to pick up roots from the deep networks they have and move somewhere else. Our guest is Sarah Song, author of Justice, Gender, and the Politics of Multiculturalism. Immigration gets at the core of who we are as a nation. Recorded live at the Marsh Theater in San Francisco. Boundaries, national boundaries, are morally significant, even if arbitrary, because they demarcate a political community that provides all sorts of fundamental goods. Nations and Borders. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Clint Taylor. We're coming to you from the Mars Theater, San Francisco's breeding ground for new performance. Our thinking originates down the road at Stanford University. That's where Ken and I teach philosophy in the Department of Philosophy. Welcome, everyone, to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're philosophizing about nations and borders. Well, Ken, uh, everyone who's a citizen of this planet, shouldn't everyone who's a citizen of this planet be able to move wherever they want? I mean, what gives nations the right to control who can cross their borders anyway? John, what planet are you on? Planetary citizenship? There's no such thing. People are citizens of nations, and nations obviously have the right to determine who can come into their territory and what they can do once they get there. Everybody agrees with that. Oh, well, you're just spouting truisms as if they were facts. But I'm asking normative questions. Should nations be able to prevent anyone from crossing their borders? If so, where do they get that right? How well, come? Well, John, come on, it's obvious. Look, if nations couldn't control who's allowed to enter their territory, chaos would ensue. Governments have a responsibility to provide security along with economic and social stability. Without border control, there would be mass immigration. That would lead to major job losses, economic instability, and excessive burdens on a state's infrastructure and public services. It's just obvious, John. Well, I grant you there may be some practical reasons for controlling the movement across the lines in the sand we call borders. But, Ken, you're a philosopher. You should be interested in basic principles of justice and rights. Oh, well, and what principles would those be? Uh, namely, we're all born on Earth. We all have an equal right to its bounty. Oh, but what about nations? Dan, you haven't mentioned nations at all. Uh, by nations, you mean these kind of arbitrary products of war, conquest, theft, occupation, ethnic cleansing. That's how they get formed, you know. So you think nations have, like, no legitimacy whatsoever? None? Well, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, communities have a right to make agreements amongst themselves about how people live. But when this means that people can draw lines about hu around huge chunks of land, whole continents in some cases, and say that people born on the other side of that line 
or on the other side of the river that forms that line. Can't come across that line to pick an apple or get a job. That's crazy. You know, okay, look, those lines were drawn a long time ago through what I admit are messy historical processes. I admit that. But that's the past. Let's focus on the present. Right here, right now, history aside, this is my country, the country where I was born. This is the country I'm a citizen of. I work here. I pay my taxes here. I obey the laws. I think that entitles me to certain rights and privileges. And those rights and privileges don't necessarily need to be given to any not arbitrary non-citizen. Even if they also work here, pay taxes, obey the law. The only difference is that you were born in some obscure place in Ohio that happens to lie within these arbitrarily drawn borders, and they weren't. Why should that entitle you to more than someone who just happened to be born somewhere else, but who contributes just as much? You're switching topics on me, John. We were talking about controlling borders. Now you're talking about what happens to people once they're here. But if you look at it, we're actually, we actually treat them pretty fairly. Take immigrants with green cards, for example. Okay, they can't vote, but they're given lots of the same benefits that citizens have, and precisely because they contribute to society. And the undocumented workers, the ones without green cards and not citizens, you're implying that they, the ones that do all the back-breaking work that green card holders and citizens don't want to do, you're implying that they don't contribute? That's not what I'm saying. I grant you, anybody who lives here and works here should have certain basic services like public education or emergency services. But there have to be limits. We can't just give undocumented workers all the same rights as citizens. That would be a huge influx of immigrants if we did that, John. But you still haven't answered my original philosophical question. What gives nations the right to control their borders in the first place? I did. I, I did answer. I gave you a practical, pragmatic admittedly historically messy answer. You just didn't like it. You're looking for some pristine argument from first philosophical principles. Well, hey, not, I, not, you're not going to get one, John. Hey, I'm, I, I'm sorry, Ken. I'm a philosopher. <laughs> you know what? I'm willing to admit it's a complicated matter. And I grant you that if we do think nations have the right to control their own borders, which I do, by the way, then we need to be able to justify that right philosophically. In that pragmatic vein, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Esch, to find out just how hard it is to succeed in this country if you're an undocumented immigrant. She files this report. When Sergio Garcia was 17 months old, his mother moved him from Mexico to a small farming community outside Chico, California. There, they joined Sergio's father. It was very difficult for my father to provide for us down there, so he made the... Uh, ultimate decision, which was a huge sacrifice to leave us behind and come in search of, of the American dream, you know, come looking for a better life. At age 36, Sergio has spent most of his life in California. He returned to Mexico for several years as a child, but graduated from high school in Chico with really good grades. Even though no one in his family had ever gone to college, Sergio applied and says he was offered full scholarships at UC Berkeley, UC Davis, and Chico State. Sergio was thrilled. He says he's always wanted to become a lawyer, and now it seemed his ambitions were possible. But upon informing them that I was in the process of adjusting my status, they all uh, took back the invitation that they had made. So at that point, I started going to a local community college, uh, Butte College. When you're undocumented, everything is harder, like finding a decent job or traveling by airplane. And there are so many things you can't do. 
When he turned 16, Sergio couldn't get a driver's license. When he turned 21, he couldn't go to bars with friends. It gets lonely. There's times when you just say, well, I don't drink. They're like, okay, well, we're not going to go drink. We're just going to go celebrate a friend's birthday. And so you have to come up with the most random excuse why you can't go, why you don't want to go. But most importantly, Sergio couldn't get scholarships, grants, or financial aid to go to community college. You have to understand that it's roughly $350 per unit at that time. And to be able to pay that kind of money when you're unemployed takes a lot longer than, than the average person. Sergio worked his way through college very slowly. He took classes as he could afford them. He ended up spending more than four years at a two-year institution. I had to literally go on the side of the road and pick up cans and, um, you know, pick up walnuts out on the orchards whenever it was possible in order to, to pay for a few classes that I was taking little by little. Eventually, in 2009, he graduated from Cal Northern School of Law and passed the bar exam on his first try. After nearly 13 years of college, Sergio's dream was coming true. But then came the final twist. When the state Supreme Court, which licenses attorneys, found out Sergio was undocumented, they put his application on hold as they consider the question, can undocumented immigrants get state-issued licenses? Many have weighed in on Sergio's behalf, including State Attorney General Kamala Harris and the state bar. Only two parties are opposing his bid, including the Obama administration. Giving Sergio a law license would apparently violate a 1996 federal immigration law. In all, Sergio has spent the better part of two decades trying to become a lawyer. And the only thing he's waited that long for is American citizenship. If nothing changes, I should be waiting another six years for a total of 25 years uh, in the immigration process. Sergio's case is the first of its kind in California, partly because it's so hard to get where he is. I asked Sergio if any of this seems fair to him. You know, I I don't think that it's necessarily fair, but uh, leaving fairness uh, aside or whatnot, I understand that there is a process, that there's a a way to do it. But the problem is that that process doesn't work. You know, there's not a real viable way to immigrate legally to this country if you are a poor person. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Ash. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.